From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The voice of astronaut Neil Armstrong there as GBB continues our Chasing the Moon commemoration of the Apollo 11 launch 50 years ago this week. That successful mission to the moon inspired generations of scientists, innovators, science fiction fans, and DIY astronomers. Lonnie Johnson was hooked on propulsion from an early age. He became a mechanical and nuclear engineer, but his most famous invention was on top of nearly every kid's wish list in the 90s, and it made summer heat a literal blast. The Super Soaker. Bases loaded, full power. Talk about pressure. That's not pressure. This is pressure. The Super Soaker's GPS constant pressure system. The game-changing toy has racked up more than $1 billion in sales. It was inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame in 2015. Lonnie continues to tinker with inventions and with expanding STEM education at his Atlanta laboratory. When I spoke with him earlier this year, he brought the original prototype of the Super Soaker into the studio. (laughs) It's fantastic. How did you think up the Super Soaker? Well, I was actually working on a different invention. I was working on a, uh, I was trying to develop a uh, heat pump that would use water as a working fluid instead of Freon because Freon's bad for the environment. So, you know, the need is the mother of invention. So I thought that, you know, if I could solve the problem of Freon being bad for the ozone layer in the environment, you know, it would be a great invention. That's a much bigger invention. <laughs> <laughs> so I was working on this this type of uh, heat pump, and I was using water instead of Freon, thinking what could be more environmentally friendly than Freon. And so I was at home in my bathroom with some nozzles that I machined, and I had it hooked up to my um, bathroom sink, and I shot the stream of water across the bathroom, and I thought to myself, geez, this really feels satisfying, a real <laughs> powerful stream of water in my hand there. And I thought, well, why don't I put this project aside and start working on a high-performance water gun? So at that point, it became an engineering project. So I started applying some of my mechanical engineering skills to design a gun that a small kid could operate. You should be able to get it to high pressure without a lot of force, force and strength. And also be able to hold a lot of water. So, so what, I, what I see here is like an old Coke bottle, PVC <laughs> piping, a couple of, I don't know, like a little sort of, I don't know, lever. Pump, that was the pump. And so the engineering feature there was to make the, the pump diameter very small because, you know, force is pressure times area. So by having a small area, I can get very high pressure and still not require a lot of force. What's not obvious is that I use very large flow tubes inside the gun so that as the water was flowing through from the tank to the trigger to the nozzle, I'd have very little pressure drop. So all the pressure drop would happen at the nozzle, meaning the water would come out at very high velocity. And that is when you became the uh, hero of many children and the bane of many parents. Well, not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, that was the idea. That happened in the early 80s, actually, about 82. And it took uh, just about 10 years, you know, before it became the number one selling toy in the world. Mm. A lot of false starts, a lot of disappointments, you know, trying to find someone to commercialize the the gun. So that, you know, designing the gun and using my engineering skills, in hindsight, was the easy part. The design did evolve over time, you know, as I ran into one obstacle in different companies that I'm talking to. I continually improved the uh, design of the gun. 
But it wasn't until 1999 that I met the people at Laramie. The gun came out in 90, 1990 originally, and then a couple of years later, it was the number one selling toy in the world. People think of the Super Soaker as a kid's toy. You created it as an adult and a dad, and I bet you were the really fun dad. I mean, epic water fights in your neighborhood, I'm guessing? Well, we had a few. Well, when I gave my daughter the prototype, you know, the other kids couldn't get close to her. I mean, it was it was, um, it was was pretty cool. Um, you know, one of the things that happened when I was at Jet Proportion Laboratory, you know, I my day job was actually um, systems engineer on out of planetary spacecraft working for NASA. And um, got a call one day from some students at Caltech. They were playing with super soakers and having dorm fights <laughs> on the hallways. And then they found out, you know, Caltech actually operates the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for NASA. And they found out that I was there at JPL, a compadre. They were really ecstatic, and they gave me a call literally out of the blue. Yeah, I bet you've changed workplaces <laughs> all over the country. I'm guessing you have a really creative spirit behind this. Did you have that spirit as a kid? Oh, yeah. Geez, um, as far back as I can remember, I was always tinkering and building and making things. I was curious about how things worked. My high school science project was actually a robot. So I actually built a, a robot in high school back in 1968. And uh, that was a big deal because you know nobody had robots back then. You know, the robots I would see on television had people inside. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he won first place at the University of Alabama in 68, just a few years after Governor Wallace had stood at the door and saying no black students would attend that university. Mm. Fortunately, um, they were not interested in my grades. I attended Tuskegee University, uh, which is where I received my bachelor's in mechanical engineering and master's in nuclear engineering. I have to go back to robot, though. I mean, you represented <laughs> Williamson High School. This is the Alabama State Fair, the only black student participating at a time when African-Americans certainly didn't have much presence in science. And you won. The robot was named Linux. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, that, that not only took some intelligence and skill, but certainly guts. I mean, was it difficult to put yourself out there as the only black student? Well, you know, at the time, I never thought about that. You know, the, this robot, I started building, working on it when I was in the 11th grade. Now, you know, as I said, I was always tinkering and interested in how things work and building things. And I wanted a big project. You know, I would work on something and it would be finished and then I'd look for something else and come up with something else and I'd finish that and I wanted something that I could really get my teeth into and so I was going to make a big project, build a robot. And so I started in the 11th grade and it literally took a year to build. A number of science fairs had passed because he wasn't ready yet. I couldn't participate in the last science fair that year, my senior year in high school, was at the University of Alabama. And this was a regional competition, so it wasn't just Alabama. There were kids from all over the southeast, different states, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida. Uh, it was a southeastern uh, regional science competition. And uh, we were the only black school there from, from Mobile, Alabama. And uh, we did take first place. How'd that go over? Well, for me, it went over just great, you know. <laughs> did you get a reward? <laughs> Yeah, I got I got a, a, a cash award. It was $250, which was a big deal back mm -hmm. then, obviously. What was Linux made of? Well, GC was a lot of parts from the junkyard. <laughs> I had gotten some parts from an old jukebox, uh, you know, a lot of relays that I used to uh, 
open and close valves so that uh, he was pneumatic for moving his arms and so forth. And then I had electric motors so they could swivel on the space and roll around uh, the floor and go to different locations. So he was a fully remote control robot. I actually could transmit signals to him. I could record him those signals so that he was programmable, you know, and I could play the signals back and have him go through the uh, motions that I programmed him to do. So he was a, he was the real deal. So you were that kid, that tinkering kid. I, I know your mom was a nurse's aide, your dad was a World War II vet and a handyman. So was he also a tinker? He used to work on projects around the house and I was, you know, always there. Um when he had a project, and I really got a kick out of watching him. He was my role model. Yeah. yeah. And my dad had that volume of, like, Time Life Home Handyman books. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to be fascinated sitting there with him in his, his shop, as he called it. Did your dad have a shop? No, he didn't have a shop. Did, um, did you guys make anything? He had a, he had a, a storage shed mm-hmm. where uh, we kept a lot of stuff. And I remember there was a big box of screws and bolts and things, and I was always in there rambling for screws that would, and, and another screw that would fit together could I, so I could use it to fasten something I was working on. Spent a lot of time digging and trying to find nuts and bolts that would match each other so that I could actually bolt something together. Did you ever make anything with your dad? Did we have a joint project? Actually, not really. I don't recall a joint project. I remember watching him work a lot. He did give me a tester for testing electrical circuits. He taught me how to repair an iron, Mm. electrical repairs. Uh, So there are some basic things he taught me, but, you know, he was not an an engineer, so he he could only talk to me about completing an electrical circuit as opposed to things like measuring resistance and calculating voltage versus uh, current and things like that. You, on the other hand, were the guy the kids in the neighborhood called the professor. From a really young age. How'd you get that nickname? Um, It just kind of happened, I guess. I don't know how it evolved, but they used to call me that. And, you know, I was always curious. You know, I was talking about the electrical things that, you know, the things that my dad taught me. But then I was curious and wanted to know more. I remember uh, one summer I wanted to go to a different high school for a summer class in electronics. And um, my mother had to actually step in to get help me get permission to go to this other school because there was some competition between the principals, apparently. Fighting over you. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to go to, this, go to this summer class and take a course in electronics. And I was always interested in how things worked and things that um, they were just, that was a mysterious space. And I wanted to know more. You were... African-American kid growing up in Alabama during the civil rights movement, super racist environment. Were there people of color who were role models to you or anybody else who was a role model to you? There were role models that um, I have some teachers at school who uh, I admired and respected. My dad was my biggest role model, and I, I think I, more than just the idea of taking on problems and working on things, I think in terms of a moral compass, Mm. that was the the thing that I valued most from my father. I used to watch, one of my favorite movies was um, Young Tom Edison. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was a movie about Tom Edison as a kid and some of the cranky situations he used to get into because of his thinking outside of the box, and I could relate to that. (laughs) Okay, what did you do? (laughs) Did you burn the house down or anything? (laughs) 
didn't burn the house down, <laughs> but I did um, have a big fire in the kitchen. <laughs> no, what were you doing? Oh, making rocket fuel. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't catch on fire. It was just these flames coming out of the pot on the stove that, um, and all the smoke and sparks and things. That was It was really pretty scary. I was the only person in the kitchen, of course, because if my mother had been in there, of course, I wouldn't have been allowed to do this, right? <laughs> So having things get out of control was a bit sobering. <laughs> so that was just the beginning for you, right, early on. How did your parents respond to you coming home and making gizmos and coming up with ideas and actually acting on them like in the kitchen? Well, you know, I, of course, I'm all paranoid now because all of this has happened in the kitchen. And fortunately, there was just a, co- a couple of small holes where some of the sparks coming out of the pot flew over and landed on some of the uh, chairs in the kitchen. And so there was a small couple of small holes burnt into the um, upholstery on the chairs. But other than that, I think it was pretty, but it was all very scary and dangerous. And so, uh, of course, I'm all paranoid about what's going to happen when my dad got home, right? And when he got home, he looked at me and he says, you're going to have to do that outside from now on. And he actually bought me a hot plate. And so the whole idea of tolerating this kooky kid who was doing all these things, sometimes dangerous, but still not stymieing my curiosity. I think um, I I really appreciate that in hindsight. Yeah, and encouraging it, it sounds like. I'm speaking with Lonnie Johnson, Atlanta engineer and inventor of the world-famous Super Soaker toy gun, among many other things that he's made. Let's go forward to when you were in the Air Force and you worked for NASA in the 70s and 80s. And and during these years, you worked on the B-2 stealth bomber. So I know what a stealth bomber sounds like, but what is it exactly? Well, the stealth bomber is, um, it looks like a flying wing. And it's specifically designed for low radar cross-section. So the whole idea is that you can fly into um, a dangerous environment and be undetected. So uh, the whole idea is designed so that the enemy cannot see see you coming, so that you'd be able to go in. It's more it was designed for initial phase of operations primarily and even deep uh, incursions into enemy territory where you want to have a strategic strike and not, of course, be destroyed in the process (laughs) or even stopped from doing it. So So the idea, if you're going to have a combative situation, uh, you'd send these stealth aircraft in to take out enemy radar and things like that so that um, you can then send the rest of your aircraft in to attack targets without fear of being shot down by missiles. So what was that like for you to turn this love of making things, this curiosity that you talked about, into getting paid by the government pretty much to tinker? <laughs> well, you know, that was my day job. You know, I worked on the stealth bomber. I worked on outer planetary spacecraft as well. I actually have an invention on the Galileo spacecraft that I feel very good about because my peers and fellow engineers at the time criticized my idea and said it wouldn't work. And it turned out it did work, and we solved the major problem. And I received a lot of compliments and, and uh, for that invention after the fact. Hmm. But so that was like me feeling like I had arrived, you know, some of the best hand-picked engineers across the country. I'm doing things that that they were thinking were not possible and so forth. So I felt like, you know, I finally become a real engineer. 
So it was gratifying in that sense. So I feel really, really good about that particular invention. Uh, but those, you know, those things I did during the day and in the evening, I would go on home and tinker and work on my own ideas and my own projects. Really? So it was, in fact, it was I was working on the Galileo project when I originally got the idea for the Super Soaker at home. Well, tell me about the Galileo project. This is a mission to Jupiter. Right. So, first, a little bit of the oversight about the purpose of the project and how did you contribute besides coming up with the Super Soaker? <laughs> well, Super Soaker was at home. It had nothing to do with it. But, the you know, it, and it advanced humankind in a totally different yeah. way. So, Gal- the Galileo Project was a mission to Jupiter. Uh, that spacecraft has since been crashed into the planet because uh, NASA did not want to contaminate any of the moons where there's a possibility there's life. And so rather than have the spacecraft randomly orbiting and eventually crashing, risking crashing into one of the moons, they purposely sent it into the planet itself. Galileo uh, was actually a, included a probe. Uh, it was a nuclear-powered spacecraft using these radioisotope thermoelectric generators. And its mission basically, it went to Jupiter it actually was on a trajectory going into the planet when it released the probe. So the probe remained on that trajectory and actually went into the Jovian atmosphere, sent back data. After releasing the probe, the spacecraft itself did a maneuver to send it into orbit so that they could actually pick up data from that probe and relay it back to Earth. So it, after the probe phase of the mission was done, then it spent... Um, uh, several years orbiting Jupiter and performing various science experiments, sending data back to Earth. And this is a really important time at NASA. Obviously, the space program had, you know, taken off, and then it was morphing into space shuttle missions, Cold War politics, all of this yeah, swirl a, going on around that's right, you. That's right. What did it feel like to be a part of that? Well, it was exciting. I, I, Cosmos, you may remember some people some, in my generation, of course, and some of the younger kids may not remember Cosmos, but this is when Cosmos was on. And, um, That's Carl Sagan's program? Carl Sagan's program. Yeah. And, and um, I remember the, um, there was this one particular program or show that he did that actually was focused on the uh, Voyager mission. Imagine that we are travelers from the stars bound for the sun. We would discover it surrounded by four giant cloudy gas worlds, Blue Neptune and its frozen moon Triton. And I had worked on Voyager while I was in the Air Force, so, you know, Traveler's Tales, I think it was the title of that particular show. And the whole idea of going to other planets and exploring planets with these nuclear-powered spacecraft that would go so far from the sun that you couldn't use solar cells. And and Voyager's still going, by the way. It's still uh, traveling. It left the solar system. Um, it was launched, I think, in 77. Um, it's now in uh, approaching interstellar space, um, and it's, it's still sending back data. Mm. What was that experience like, though, entering into this profession, into this government agency dominated by white men at the time, especially I mean, we've seen hidden figures, for example, the women who were working at NASA and what they had to, they were subjected to. Was there any intimidation or feelings that you weren't welcome? Oh, there was uh, always that in the background. You just, um, you just become accustomed to that. That, that becoming accustomed to that. I was thinking just as you were asking the question, I was thinking, 
geez, when I was in co-op, when I was co-oping in college and went to work as a co-op student for Union Carbide, uh, being the only black professional in the building, I remember walking through the plant one day, and one of the workers called me over. Said, come, come, come! Let me talk to you. Come, let me talk to you. And I wanted, well, what does he want? I went over to see what he wanted. He says, you should get a screwdriver and get on one of these assembly lines because they're going to fire you. I, you know, everybody in the plant was a line worker punching time cards. And, of course, I was working as, on salary as a professional engineer. And so they just, even, you know, uh, African-American people, black people, couldn't, couldn't really come to grips with the fact that we were making progress because they'd been so conditioned to mm. accept status quo. But that goes all the way back to high school as well, you know, with the robot. And so at this point, I'd be, sort of become accustomed to be the only person in the position who looked like me. And sometimes I would, you know, quite honestly, use that to my advantage because expectations were so low. I could just relax, take it all in, you know, observe the situation. And then once I knew the lay of the land, then I could do my thing. <laughs> well, which is interesting because now we know a lot about cognitive abilities and that kind of pulling back can actually be super useful for the brain to function, especially in complicated ideas and tasks. Mm. So, you were, so you were a progenitor there too, Lonnie. <laughs> I was doing it without, <laughs> without realizing what I was doing, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely, instinctively. My guest is Lonnie Johnson, a mechanical engineer, a nuclear engineer, and he continues to invent a lot of things in his Atlanta laboratory. Among the things he has invented in his past, the super soaker. We're going to get into that story when we come back. This is On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPP. I'm Virginia Prescott. As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, we return to my earlier conversation with Atlanta nuclear engineer and super soaker inventor Lonnie Johnson. Not only did that invention change the squirt gun ballistics game, but Lonnie made history himself as an African-American man in NASA's white-dominated jet propulsion lab. There, he worked on, among other things, developing the nuclear power source for the Galileo mission to Jupiter. Lonnie, did your colleagues or peers even know about the inventions that you were working on outside of work, like what turned into the super soaker? Not really. Some of my friends, you know, I had friends at work who, yeah, knew, knew about it, but um, most of the people that I worked with did not know what I was doing. Was there not a lot of interaction? Well, we had interactions. Uh, when I was in the Air Force, it was a little bit different. Um, they did know. You know, we would um, have uh, office functions or, you know, social uh, e events that um, were, uh, we would get together uh, as an organization. And, yeah, sometimes I would actually bring my prototype and, and uh, it was a great icebreaker. Uh, but not so much at NASA in hindsight. And it's, it's curious. Some of my friends that I work with at NASA knew at NASA, but um, generally the people that... Um, were on staff there, did not know what else I was doing. So whereas Silicon Valley could probably really benefit from super soaker play, maybe not so much <laughs> NASA. But this wasn't the only toy that you invented. We know Nerf guns already existed when you were inventing, when you got the patent for the super soaker. But you collaborated with the company on Nerf dart guns. How did that happen? There were a couple of things that happened. When I actually uh, brought the uh, water gun to Laramie, I also bought, brought with me a um, 
or air launch the rocket, where you actually pump up this launch system and would launch the rocket. And um, these, these rockets were made of plastic tubes, and they would go really, really high. But then when they come down and hit the ground, they would break up. Mm-hmm. And so we had a, a challenge that you know, the water gun was pretty straightforward. You know, we got it commercialized and everything. And, you know, the challenge there was just getting the manufacturing cost down and figuring out what the right price would be and so forth. And it just became very successful. The rocket, though, became a challenge. And we actually started jokingly calling it solving the reentry problem because it would go up <laughs> and it would come down and break. And so we came up with all of these mechanisms, you know, releasing parachutes, changing aerodynamics, and all of these things that could get the rocket to survive coming back down to the ground. And then, so the Nerf work on the Nerf dart guns, high performance Nerf dart guns, came out of that. So the soft foam rockets obviously could go and they could hit the ground and survive reentry. And so that that became the solution to that problem. Um, but those were vertically launched rockets, um, shooting the same, using the same principles to shoot uh, darts and rockets horizontally. Uh, you know, that was just a different design. But at that point, I decided, you know, I wanted to be the king of all toy guns. What happened in the process there, Laramie uh, did a split. They said, well, the vertical, the horizontal launch stuff is ours and the vertical launch stuff is yours. Of course, I felt that was totally unfair because it all had started from work that I was doing with them. But, you know, as much as I protested, they didn't acquiesce and I didn't want to end up in a lawsuit with them. Eventually, I did anyway, but you know, it's, but I tried to make the best of the situation. But you know, after that happened, you know, I decided. Well, you know, I would actually take guns to Laramie, and somehow my, some of my mechanisms would end up in product, and they would somehow make a case that it wasn't mine. And so I pulled back, and I said, "Okay, I'm going to stop competing against myself because this is not working." So I designed an entire line of dart guns, and my goal was to become the king of all toy guns, right? I wanted super circular water guns and then the Nerf dart guns, and those that would be all of them. And so I just started designing guns that outperformed everything that Laramie and Hasbro had at the time, and I got patents on it all. And so when I took them a full line of product that had different price points, you know, very expensive versions and very small, cheap versions, everything in the middle and so forth. Then I had something that, you know, I could take to any company, and um, they didn't want me to take that to a competitor, and so we entered a deal at that point. So I technically became the king of all toy guns. Yeah, like the Scarface <laughs> Face of a toy gun, but I mean, you know, there's a, there's a serious side to this because there was a real backflap against these as homicide rates increased around the country in the '90s. Right. Super soakers became a target. There were calls to remove the toy gun from stores because they encouraged violent play. So, what is your response to parents and organizations who said that? Well, you know, when all of that was happening, it really started getting scary um, and con- and concerning. And I was taking, obviously, taking it all very serious. And, and, and I got a call one day from a reporter, and he said, um, Mr. Johnson, uh, we just got a report that uh, a super soaker was used in a drive-by shooting. Mm. And, um, and, and before we go to press with this, we were wondering if you had any comments. And I thought about it, and I said, geez, what I say right now could be, you know, have a tremendous impact on what happens going forward. And I, so I gave it a lot of serious thought. 
And of course, he's on the line. So I, it was like the pressure's on, you know. I said, well, maybe we should have more of that. Let's have everybody shooting with super soakers instead of real guns, and we'll be all better off. It'll be a lot more fun. <laughs> and what was the response to that? I don't think he expected that. <laughs> Well, there would be a far fewer fatalities, certainly. But you, you were in the military, right? You looked at design for weaponry. Were these two things in completely different realms for you? I mean, weaponry and toy in your mind? Well, what's interesting about that, you know, as you ask that question, I don't think I've been asked that one before. You know, my role when, and particularly in this period of time, you know, I, I got when I go back to the Air Force after coming up with the idea. I was actually on active duty in the military at Strategic Air Command Headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska. And my job there was advanced space systems technology. This was before Space Command was created. And the um, and Strategic Air Command is the nuclear command. The four-star general, the boss right down the hall, was responsible for you know, targeting and, and designating targets for all three legs of our nuclear force, the submarines, as, as well as the bombers, as well as land-based missiles. All of that was handled in that command. And so I literally came up with it, you know, uh, this concept of non-nuclear strategic weapons, meaning that you don't have to have a huge nuclear weapon if you had a weapon that was... Um, strategic and could actually take out a critical component in a target as opposed to all of this mass destruction. And so my focus was on minimizing collateral damage and and minimizing destruction and minimizing death, actually, in, in conflict. And at the same time, recognizing that sometimes conflict is inevitable because you can have bad actors, you can have uh, threats that you have to respond to. So one of the effects of your toys are also not just entertainment, but for all these kids who see them, maybe like you to be a young person, seeing the mechanics, seeing how something works, and becoming inspired. Have you heard from anybody who, you know, changed their life because of playing with one of your toys and thinking about ro rocket propulsion or the problem of reentry, that kind of thing. <laughs> I'm getting feedback all the time. Yeah, you know, tell me, constantly. what do you hear? I mean, I hear people talk about how, you know, the super soaker just made their childhood. And, you know, I've had um, just lots and lots of positive feedback. And in fact, you know, what we're doing now, we have a um, STEM program at my laboratory. We've allocated about 20,000 square feet of space to uh, what I'm calling the Johnson uh, STEM Activity Center, where we actually get kids involved in engineering and technology. Uh, you know, this whole process of moving technology forward is something that has um, been a character of human beings since day one. You're know, going back to when we first picked up a rock or experimented with fire and learn how to use fire, learn how to use tools, um, even art. And that whole process is just, it has accelerated to this point and it's continuing to accelerate. You know, computers are getting smarter, technology is moving forward faster and faster. We're now developing robots that are much more sophisticated than the robot that I built when I was a kid. And that's going to continue. 
and uh, we need our youth to be able to be effective in this new world that's coming. They need to be prepared for it. They need to be able to make contributions to continue this human experience that uh, we're a part of. But there's a parallel conversation here, too, also for women and girls not involved in STEM fields, uh, minorities vastly underrepresented in STEM fields. So somebody who might want to be an engineer or computer science may feel a little bit like you did, you know, going into the Alabama fair, the only female in the room, the only person of color in the room. What do you say to that kid? Well, we've had one of our kids actually... um we have a robotics program at my laboratory in part of the STEM activity uh, center. And um, we actually have an all-girls robotics team. Uh, we've actually targeted inner-city kids, underserved kids, and we have, um, we've made that a focus. The facility is open to everyone, and we hold uh, uh, events there for competitions, and we invite kids from all of the schools. So one of our teams is um, uh, Eve it's a robotics team because it's all girls <laughs> and they're all, actually all black kids. And um, one of them, Medina, one uh, was selected as the girl of the year by women in technology. Well, congratulations to Medina. We're going to continue our conversation with Lonnie Johnson. He's an Atlanta-based engineer. He's an inventor of the world-famous super soaker toy gun, among other things. And we're going to learn about what he is getting up to now. This is On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. He has worked for NASA, he's served in the Air Force, and he's created the Super Soaker, a leading-edge toy. Now Lonnie Johnson is working on energy solutions in his Atlanta lab, Johnson Research and Development. Well, tell us a little bit about that. You're in the sweet Auburn neighborhood. Now, this is near public housing units like Grady and Capital Homes. Why did you settle there? Grady and Capital Homes were there when I purchased the property. They're not there anymore. Uh, those were public housing uh, communities. I purchased the, the site there because this was part of my give back initiative. You know, I had met this uh, professor, Clark Atlanta University, and dean of uh, economics and, and business, Dr. Ed Irons. And he used to talk to me about... Um, true economic development, when you can produce a product and ship the product out and bring wealth into a community as opposed to exchanging resources within a community, limited resources and, and basically service economy within a community, but producing something and shipping it out and then bringing wealth in is true economic development. So my strategy was to set up a company there in that, that neighborhood between two public housing neighborhoods and... Um, produce, uh, set up a manufacturing oper operation and produce manufacturing jobs so that we could actually have true economic development. I had licensed uh, battery technology from, technology from Oak Ridge National Laboratory for thin film batteries. And the idea was to manufacture batteries and, and create jobs. Well, this was the next generation. I had done analysis on the technology and concluded that this, this technology was much better than the emerging technology at the time, which was lithium-ion batteries, and I thought that we would literally catch the entire battery industry flat-footed. Hmm. Well, it turned out that the technology from Oak Ridge was not really ready for manufacturing. You couldn't produce those batteries economically. And so my vision of creating manufacturing right off the bat literally evaporated, and 
uh, but rather than give up, true to my <laughs> philosophy of persevering, <laughs> as I did with Super Soaker over 10 years and even with the robot in high school, I decided not to give up. So the idea was that, okay, I'm going to solve these problems and this technology is still going to be much, much better than lithium-ion batteries. Uh, these are solid-state batteries where the, instead of a liquid electrolyte that's subject to catch fire, this is a glass electrolyte. It's all solid. Uh, there's no chemicals to leak out of anything like that. And then it'll hold ten, uh, two times the energy of lithium-ion batteries. So making so your cell phones would you know, last longer before needing recharged laptop computers and even, even electric vehicles. So I had visions for all of these applications, right? But the technology could not be manufactured economically, mm-hmm. meaning I have to sell it at a price that was too high to make it viable for those applications. So I embarked on a development program to make uh, develop a low-cost manufacturing technique for uh, solid-state batteries using more conventional ceramic processing techniques, literally green tape casting and firing in ovens just like making pottery. But instead of pottery, these would be solid-state ceramic batteries that would be about twice the energy of lithium-ion batteries. So we literally embarked on this program to leapfrog the um, battery industry. And over the past few years, we've continued to push forward with that technology. We had some support from the city of Atlanta through an empowerment zone loan to help us set up manufacturing, of course. We got into the R&D program. That vision didn't quite work out either, but we persevered. Uh, We're continuing to push the technology. We now have working sales by this low-cost manufacturing technique, and it's taken a long time to get here. A lot of false starts, a lot of rabbit holes that did not yield fruit. It's been a hardcore research and development effort. Mm. A lot of false starts. And, of course, a lot of financial stress as well. But as a result of pursuing the battery technology, I got into electrochemistry and learned by self-teaching, of course, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of things about electrochemistry. (laughs) And as a result of that, I come up with even newer battery technology that is um, beyond the solid-state battery. It'll be the next generation. This is a conversation that you had. This is TEDx Atlanta 2014, Revolutionary Designs for Energy Alternatives. Let's hear just a little bit. 80 million cars produced every year. The battery for the Tesla Model S cost about $50,000. So you're talking about an economic impact of about $4 trillion in batteries every year. That's a mind-boggling impact. Clearly, we have to have a better battery technology if we're going to make electric vehicles possible. So this is something that you're embarking on, this battery technology, the thin film technology, not ready for, for production, certainly in Atlanta. Um, you moved on to other things, but I want to get to more of the kind of process. That's really interesting to me. You talked about perseverance. You talked about false starts. Now, those are things that you have learned in a lifelong way as you're mentoring young people and, you know, teaching people these skills so that they can make things in your lab or design things in your lab. That's not as easy to teach. How do you communicate that? It's sort of what I, my philosophy about it is sort of what worked for me. You know, you mentioned, uh, you, you pointed out when I was relaying my experience with um, the, the uh, rocket fuel, mm-hmm. how my parents did not discourage me. In fact, they were encouraging. 
what you have to do with kids is have them experience success. When they experience success and they develop a habit of experiencing success, they eventually want to have more of it. You know, they, they'll want to, they'll think of themselves as successful and they'll be more willing to take risk to continue to receive the gratification of, be, of feeling successful. And so even when they run into problems and setbacks, they still have that inherent feeling, if they grew up with it, of thinking themselves as of being successful. So having them experience success is something that you can't take away from them once they get it. And so that's one of the things that the robotics program and the other STEM activities that we have at my facility focuses on is having the kids experience success so that they own it. It's theirs. Once it's there, you can't take it away. But you talked about so many false starts, so many trials and tribulations in your own career, and you were prepared for that on some level. You had the skills. You had the mindset. You had the example of your dad, as you said, the moral compass. For kids who don't have that example, I think it's very hard to communicate that this is how you get up when things fall down. Well, again, I wish we could touch every kid, but we can touch those that we bring in. Um, they can touch other kids. One of the things, by the way, that um, is inherent with our core programs, which is the first robotics program, is this whole activity of kids who are in the program going out and working with other kids and, and, and actually um, helping to um, spread the word and spread those experiences of success and getting starting other programs, motivating other kids. And so making it a self-growing uh, uh, initiative, if you will. So, but for the kids that are able to come into the facility, it literally is geared so that they get this experience, they can build things, and once they start building it and they realize what they're capable of doing, the self-doubt starts to, to dissipate. We're speaking with Lonnie Johnson. He's an Atlanta-based engineer and inventor and now mentor of young people who are have the inclination and mindset to make things and bring them back into the economic base of the city, in fact, in the Sweet Auburn neighborhood right now. Well, Lonnie, it took 10 years before you saw the super soaker hit the market. And I can imagine that for an independent inventor, there's a lot of thinking that you have to do about intellectual property, about protecting yourself. You talked about, you know, designing a whole array of products and getting the patents on them so that you could present to the toy manufacturers that this was yours. You'd covered the waterfront there. So that process, how did you learn it and how are you navigating it differently when we have a much different patent environment than we used to? Good questions. <laughs> well, back when when I was trying to get the Super Circle commercialized, and I had the idea initially I wanted to manufacture it myself. I wanted to set up production when I found realized, and, and up to this point you have to realize that all of my professional work was not in private business uh, industry or commercialization. All my work was with the government. Yeah, as a right. Government. So this totally is, different financial it's model, a right? Whole different space. And so, when I talked to a manufacturer, and they said it was going to talk, cost two hundred thousand dollars to get the first thousand guns off the production line, my simple math said nobody was going to pay two hundred dollars for a water gun. 
amortization of tooling costs and those kind of things and didn't enter my calculation because I didn't, wasn't thinking in those terms. Um, but what I did decide was that, you know, and, and I was concerned about someone taking my idea, running with me with it and, and leaving me out of it. But I also realized that if I wanted to become an inventor, an independent business person, um, you you can't make any money if nobody knows about your idea. So you got to put it out there. So my decision was that, okay, I'm willing to lose. I'm willing to put it out there. If somebody takes it and runs with it, the least thing that could happen is that I'll learn something. And so the knowledge that, this pursuit of the knowledge and knowing how to get a product to, to market was really what I was after, more so than just that particular product at the time. Fortunately, it turned out really well. <laughs> and there were a lot of false starts. You know, I think I, you know, over that period of seven years or so, I talked to a, a number of different companies. We actually, everyone who saw it liked it. We one company couldn't get the gun out of the model shop. The engineers just kept stumbling over themselves for whatever reason. Another one company was being poorly managed. You know, the owner of the company sold it and then he bought it back. And I mean, it was constantly going through ownership gyrations. And I would find myself picking up the phone and every time I talked to the, someone at the company, I was talking to a new person who was starting up from ground zero and didn't know what the product was all about. And just a lot of false starts even within that company. Eventually, I met some people at uh, Intertech. My first product to market was actually an airplane called Jamming Jet. And Jamming Jet? Yeah. Okay. Um, it was a water-propelled airplane, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and they had the water gun, too, but they never got the water gun out of the model shop. Jamming Jet went to production, but they manufactured the airplanes, broke with the manufacturing it wasn't a manufacturing defect, it was a design defect because they designed the airplane to fly in a circle, but rather than fly in a circle, it would roll and dive into the ground. Just basic aerodynamic engineering considerations that they didn't take into account. And when they were modifying the design, I literally was jumping up and down screaming. I called the president of the company, everybody I could try and reach, and nobody would listen to me. And they ended up spending, I think, a million dollars in TV advertising beyond what it cost to set up the production. Manufactured about 60,000 airplanes, I think. And uh, every one of them had this design defect that caused them to fly into the ground first flight. Reentry problem again. <laughs> <laughs> and that company eventually went out of business. <laughs> so yeah, I am starting over again. You know, in fact, at one point I thought to myself, you know, maybe this was not meant to be. I mean, as much as I try to push forward, um, things keep going wrong. Um, but fortunately, uh, persevering one more time <laughs> eventually um, bore fruit. Well, I've been describing you, and you're well known as the super soaker guy, the guy who invented it. And you brought in that fantastic prototype for us to look at today. But what would it mean for you to be the person who, you know, creates a better battery that is thinner, that lasts longer, that is less toxic to the earth, that could be lucrative for production in a neighborhood like like southern Atlanta? What would that mean? 
is that the legacy that you're looking for? The journey is um, is the more enjoyable part of uh, a challenge as opposed to eventual victory. You know, victory, you get the trophy and so forth, but the journey is really the experience that um, is enriching. You know, I, I talked about um, experiencing success uh, and having uh, that experience make you desire more experiences like that and even make you willing to take on risk to experience it. I've managed to take on bigger and bigger risk and bigger and bigger challenges. And this is obviously coming up with the world's best battery. It's a huge challenge. You know, you think about all the battery companies in the world, Panasonic, you know, EverReady even. I mean, all of these people who make batteries, Sony and all of them, spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to come up with the um, next generation of high-performance battery. And here, Lonnie Johnson with his little small team here in Atlanta working to take them all on. You know, it's uh, it's like spitting in the eye of the tiger, you know. <laughs> and and I, I enjoy the challenge. You now hold more than 100 patents. Is there any that you are most proud of? The JTEC, the heat engine, um, I feel very good about that. We are now starting a contract with NASA. NASA has recognized the potential benefit of my engine for converting heat from these nuclear power sources to to provide electricity for spacecraft that are going to other planets. This is like coming full circle because when I was on Galileo, I was responsible for integrating the nuclear power system onto that spacecraft. Now having invented a new type of converter for nuclear power systems and NASA now funding us to start the development of it, uh, it's pretty, pretty, pretty rewarding. I feel good about that and I'm excited about it. For those who are would-be inventors or engineers or want to make things that are going to change the world, what what would you say to them? I would say persevere. <laughs> Go for it. Coming up with a concept and then being able to turn it into reality, I think is the closest thing to magic I can think of. Lonnie Johnson, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. Thank you. Lonnie Johnson there, Atlanta-based engineer and inventor of the world-famous Super Soaker toy gun. You still have time to get soaked this summer. This week, GBB is chasing the moon to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. You can learn more about all the related stories on our website, gpb.org forward slash moon. And you can join the conversation on social media by using the hashtag GBB to the moon. That is our show for today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Jake Troyer, LaRaven Taylor, and Bram Sable-Smith. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. See you next time. <laughs>